My girlfriend Hannah and I have been trying to process through some of the weight of this season because this is a heavy season as we process through issues of racism and justice and we think through the implications of the gospel for how we live. And I wanted to share some of what we had written together about what we are grieving. I'm grieving the intentional deaths of black men and women which follow in the bloodstained history of prejudice, racism, and hatred in our nation. I am grieving that we are not only dealing with unintentional deaths caused by forces of nature, but that we are experiencing unjust and intentional deaths caused by the forces of evil, even within the human heart. I am grieving the prejudice, racism, and hatred within my own heart and mind. I am grieving that I cannot say that those problems only exist in the world outside of me. I am grieving for those that remain unconvinced that racism is still an issue within our nation. I'm grieving that any human being, regardless of race, ethnicity, or background, would be treated with less dignity than an image bearer of God deserves. I'm grieving that suspicion is enough to make a black man in our nation fear for his life. I'm grieving the loss of innocence for young black and minority children whose parents have to explain why someone might want to hurt them. I'm grieving that on top of a global pandemic, many black and minority people are feeling the heightened weight and pressure of boiling racial tension. I'm grieving for black and minority friends who may be wondering who believes in the legitimacy of their suffering and who cares about their suffering. I am grieving that I am uncertain about how to speak about such weighty things in a way that correctly honors those that deserve to be honored and nuances the complexity of our world. I am grieving that I fear saying something wrong or being complicit. I am grieving for the law enforcement officers who serve faithfully and have served faithfully for years while dealing with some of the most difficult problems in our society, most of whom are utterly horrified by the actions of the police officers involved in the injustice done to George Floyd and others, and now must bear the weight of their trespasses. I grieve the villainization and threats faithful law enforcement officers must endure on top of their own griefs of life, this pandemic, and racial tensions. I'm grieving the riots, burning, and destruction of Minneapolis, the city in which I was born, and other cities. I'm grieving that the pain and grief of so many is so great that rioting seems a viable option. I am grieving that they have felt abandoned by the law and have thus abandoned the law to their own suffering and are seeking to solve their hurt in a fruitless endeavor which perpetuates destruction. I'm grieving the fragility of humanity and the uncertainty we all feel about how to move forward. I'm grieving that Christ has not yet returned with justice and mercy in his hands to restore this world to the full reality of the kingdom of God. I'm grieving that many will look for solutions to our problems that will have nothing to do with Jesus Christ and his kingdom, which remains the only hope of humanity. I am grieving that many remain unaware of the peace found at the cross of Christ, who through his faithful endurance took upon himself the evil and injustice of humanity to bring peace with God and with fellow humanity for all those who find refuge in him. Wanted to share that before we got into our podcast and talk through some of these issues together. Hey everybody, you're listening to Living Theology with the Luby Brothers, a podcast dedicated to understanding and living out the gospel. The gospel that brings us to God and transforms us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We are your hosts, Doug, Greg, and Mark Luby.
Doug, will you lead our discussion today? I will, Mark. First, I wanted to say that I appreciate what you and Hannah were writing there, as it addresses so much of the grief, pain, and just complexity of all of this, that, yeah, this is a heavy, heavy season. And there's no way that, even in this format that allows us to talk, that we'd be able to cover all of those things. So as we've been discussing together, today we're going to focus on the image of God and grieving with those who grieve. We want to do another podcast, probably the next one, about how the gospel and justice are related, as there's lots of debates within evangelical Christianity about that right now. But today we thought it's necessary to start with an affirmation of the dignity specifically of black men and women as made in the image of God, and then to move to discuss what are the things that have grown our compassion, have maybe challenged the ways that we see the world such that we would begin to grieve with those who grieve. So as we begin by starting with the image of God, Greg, would you open us up on that? Yeah, I think this is just the most foundational element for this whole discussion that man is created in the image of God, that human beings have inherent worth and dignity and value because we are made in God's image. And so this idea comes from Genesis 1, 26 through 27. And it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so that's just where we get that idea from, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. And then Genesis 9, 6 talks about this idea again. We see it a lot in many different places, but here it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And this is talking about the idea of murder and just saying that murder is wrong because man's made in God's image and has inherent worth and value. And so people are worthy of being treated with dignity and respect and have inherent worth and value because they are made in the image of God. And this is something that I think um, maybe we, well, as I just see, I think that we inherently know this truth. I think people know that uh, people yeah. have inherent worth and value, unless we suppress it um, because of sin. But we have this in our hearts, knowing that people have value and worth. And um, yet, yeah, I think that it's something that we can't just assume necessarily outside of really this truth that we see in Scripture. And so for Christians, we really do have a foundational basis of saying that people, regardless of their race or ethnicity or gender have worth and value and dignity. And so this is where we just need to start as Christians with this truth and this idea. And I think that if we don't have this idea, then um, we aren't really have starting on a solid footing for this whole discussion. Absolutely. The Christian has a reason underlying their worldview to say that racism is wrong because all men and women are made in the image of God to bear his likeness. What's interesting about the Genesis 9 um, reference to the image of God is that that is talking about after the fall. 
that we still bear the image of God. Now it's a fallen image of God in every single one of us, but we bear the image of God. Thinking about my little girl who is now almost six weeks old, it is so sweet to hold her and to see my image in her face. Her lips and her nose look like mine. Her cheeks are the same kind of shape as mine. There's something astounding that this little girl bears my image. And to think that if someone would attack her, she they're attacking her, but it's also going to be grieving to me because she's my daughter. Think about the Lord God making humans in his image. Thus, they have intrinsic worth and he Our Heavenly Father cares about them. So to attack any human being on the basis of ethnicity is an assault on the dignity of God in that person and an assault on God himself. And as we think about that idea, I think that a lot of the tension that we're feeling right now, if not all of it, and is just a distortion of this image of realizing, understanding, and believing that all people are creating the image of God. And so as we begin opening this discussion, we believe that it's a distortion of seeing and treating people in the image of God that creates this tension. And that's found in many different ways. So we'll flesh that out a little bit more. Yeah. I think there is something that we're seeing right now, which is, like you guys are saying, we we do take it, and I, I mean this in a good way, for granted that everyone is an image bearer of God. Um, it wouldn't be always maybe phrased in that way, but as we even think about Black Lives Matter, in thinking about that statement of Black Lives Matter, what's that affirming? That's affirming that black men and women are image bearers of God. Um, that this community bears the image of God. And it's it's not saying that black lives only matter, but it's a response to the reality of a history of oppression within our nation where black men and women have not been treated as though they were truly deserving of the weight and the awe and the wonder that an image bearer of God deserves to be treated with. And that's... It's what we get down to. And so it is, It is in a sense, quite astounding to think of the public outcry that we see over someone not being treated as an image bearer of God, which is right and good and holy for there to be a public outcry when there is an offense against anyone that is degrading the image of God. And like you're saying, Doug, and like you're saying, Greg, which is ultimately an affront on God himself who made us in his image and assigned equal dignity, value, and worth to every human being. Absolutely. And back to the statement, Black Lives Matter, we need to affirm that in our society. Now, we don't affirm everything that the organization Black Lives Matter says because their picture of human flourishing isn't a full gospel picture, but we stand alongside even that organization in the central point that their lives do matter. Because when our society treats people 
who are minorities, who are unborn, who are handicapped, in whatever way that we might diminish a person's value based on really anything, we need to affirm that their lives matter. And I've been thinking a lot about the story of Hagar recently, and just the sweetness that the Lord saw her. So in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah mistreat their servant woman. Abraham, the hero of the faith, Sarah, a hero of the faith, have Hagar. And Abraham sleeps with Hagar. She gets pregnant. This was Sarah's idea. And then Sarah mistreats Hagar. Hagar begins to flee. And now you cannot get into a much worse spot in society than being a pregnant woman who is a servant fleeing after her abuse. And yet the Lord comes to her and promises her blessing. And she says that the Lord sees her. What a great God that we serve that he would care about a woman like Hagar, who is despised not only by the world, but even by the heroes of our faith. Oh, man. And it's grieving to think that even a lot of the people that we would call heroes of the faith in centuries past have been complicit with this. Um Man, but thankful that our God is one who actually does care. So even as we start with affirming the dignity of men and women, man, we're wanting to see people like God does. The God who sees and cares and comes to them. And now, how do we go about this? How do we bring about justice? There is so much in that that I don't understand I think the first part is to see that the dignity of image bearers of God has been assaulted. And that leads us to grieve. Do you guys have anything else on being image bearers before we move into the things that have been challenging to our own worldviews and that help us to have compassion? I think one thought I would I would just add to it is seeing the image of God in Genesis 1, the fall into sin in Genesis 3, the affirmation in Genesis 9, I believe, where Moses, or not Moses, Noah, and, you know, the shedding of the blood requires the shedding of blood because the image of God is still in people. And then you, you know, looking forward to the promise that was given to Abraham and the promise given to him is, and you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed from the beginning, from Genesis, God's promises been every nation, every family upon this earth will be blessed through the promise that is coming to you, Abraham, that God has had a heart for the nations and for the people from the beginning. And then you see this come through, through Christ in Ephesians two, it talks about how this wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, Jew being God's people whom he had chosen, um, coming ultimately down through Abraham and to Israel, um, that God was going to bless Jew and Gentile, but the Jews who had been given this promise and carried it forward as God's chosen people, and then saying that this hostility, this wall of hostility between the Jew and the non-Jew, 
Greek as ethnos for Gentile, just meaning the ethnic nations, the other people, that that dividing wall of hostility is ultimately broken down through Christ, who becomes peace with God and peace with man. And so Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, talking about how Christ restores us to God. And then it, it goes on in the rest of Ephesians 2, talking about how this dividing wall of hostility is broken down as there is one new man in Christ, that all people are brought together in Christ. And then you, again, fast forward to Revelation, and you see men and women from every tribe, nation, and tongue under the earth around the throne praising Christ. And the image that we're given, ultimately, of men and women from every tribe, nation, and tongue praising our Lord is that it is, it's not a colorblind society. It's not one that denies the reality of our ethnic identities or racial identities, but it's one in which there is both unity and diversity, unity in Christ and uh, unity around the throne, but men and women from every tribe, nation, and tongue. So even just the beautiful portrait that scripture portrays of a blessing from the beginning of the image of God upon all people, the promise of salvation for all people, the fulfillment in Christ who brings unity, and then the end of the story where we're all around the throne. There's just a beautiful portrait, which I think even in a society, it's fascinating to me, if I can use that term, that we live in a society that says each person matters. We're outraged that we're not seeing that, and we are justifiably so. And there's even a recognition of that there is evil in our world, evil in our hearts, evil in the systems of our world, even going down to our own hearts and, and ways in which we're complicit. And for me, even just in this moment, it's it's somewhat of a moment where I'm saying, do we recognize what we're saying? Like, let's say this. Let's see what we're saying. Like, there's evil that has infected the whole of the cosmos from the systems we've created to the human heart. And what we're crying out for is redemption and healing. And to me, that's where I stand on this moment. And I think of those that might stand opposed to the idea of privilege or racism in our nation as a still continuing reality, who might come from a conservative evangelical bent. And I would say, how could you deny that <laughs> a nation that's crying out there's evil in our world there's a there's a defamation of the image of god and i am complicit in it it's like this is where we ought to say the gospel speaks to this this if, if the gospel doesn't speak to this then how could it possibly speak to any of the things that we're going through how could we fail to affirm the need to speak truthfully and biblically to that what i think is even kind of cool, Mark, as a side tangent there on what you're talking about, is that it's not just um, that we're all kind of equal and our background doesn't matter, but what we see in Revelation is that every tribe, tongue, nation, and language is gathered around the throne, and that's God's heart. And so there's even something unique about how every single person, every single culture, every single ethnicity will portray the gospel in a particular type of way that'll bring God glory in a way that God wouldn't be fully glorified without it. And so it's not like we're just all totally the same, but there's actually something really positive and there's something that's glorious about different backgrounds, different ethnicities that as Christians we should embrace because it's God's heart. And without 
that God wouldn't be fully glorified the way that he intends to be glorified through the world, through um, people that look different, through people that have differences in different ways. It will be beautiful forever to be the assembled people of God, one body in perfect harmony, but still remaining and living out who God has originally designed us to be in the diversity of cultures. It'll be sweet to see what that looks like in a world without sin. Mm -hmm. Even now, we can be so thankful for our friends from other ethnicities, cultures, backgrounds. My Malaysian friends helped me to understand so many things about the gospel that I often skimmed over as a white individualistic American, seeing their emphasis on the stories of the Bible, seeing their emphasis on community and relationships, seeing the ways that they prayed. There were so many things that my Malaysian friends, even some of whom were not Christians, helped me to see about what the gospel says. And there's a dignity to these cultures that we can often look over. Yeah. I think I think it's part of the reality where what racism ultimately is and what their problem is is it is because some people would say, ah, it's just, you know, evil and good and don't be complicit in evil, but do good. And, and yes, that's obviously true. But I think when we say racism, what we're specifying is the distortion of this. It's a distortion of a celebration of the unique um, identification of the image of God in each individual person, as well as... Um, a celebration and embrace of the unique cultures, ethnicity, and race that God has given to each person, which is why colorblindness doesn't work because you're just denying um, the uniqueness of the giftings, talents, blessings that are given, um, you know, across different cultures in the world. And you're saying, oh, no, we're just going to be one culture, which if you're white, it's going to be white culture that you might be unaware that you're promoting. Um, we're going to be monolithic. We're going to be all white. It's like, oh, that's just called imperialism. Um, but racism in particular, what we're saying is racism is a lack of celebrating the image of God and the uniqueness. It's rather than celebrating, it's demonizing. Rather than... Um, embracing it's opposing rather than being for it's being against the uniqueness that god has given it's going into fear as opposed to celebration so it's the revelation picture of every tribe nation and tongue there's a unity with diversity which is what is biblically affirmed unity and diversity oneness one body that we we have more in common with our black brothers and sisters than we have with family members who aren't christians that's the type of reality of the oneness in Christ, but also a celebration of I see you for who you are, and you're not exactly me, and I'm not exactly you, but we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think that racism ultimately is an affront to that celebration, to that uh, understanding, to that love for what God has made and designed to be. Mark, that's helpful because the biblical picture of peace is not just a lack of tension. 
where everyone kind of does their own thing and is free to do it. But it is being one body united in Christ. There's a positive aspect to this. And now, so much of our current issues is not only a lack of the positive, but also a presence of the negative, of our own natural self-interest that we see on our individual levels also plays out in group dynamics. Um, I've been thinking about how sin has a corrupting nature. Sometimes I think about sin as an individual thing that I do, which it is, and there's choices to sin or not sin, but there's also... For me in my life, this downward spiral that sin can take that happens with addictions where it perpetuates itself. And that happens on an individual level, but also on a national level and a worldwide level. Sin has a downward spiral that goes further and further and further to where sometimes you don't even notice how much sin is taken. But it's interesting that often we think that a lack of tension is maybe the best that we can have. But the way that the gospel will ultimately unwind sin is to not only remove tension, but to promote peace, relationship, fellowship. And it almost seems impossible to believe that that's going to happen. Until Christ returns, it will not happen perfectly. But that is what we're living for, to undo what sin has done through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to be his church and his one body in the world, to live out his gospel. And that's what we want to give our lives to. We want to live out this theology. But let's transition now to one of the things that have been challenging for you guys, for me, and how we see the world, and what are the things that have really helped us to grow in compassion and to grieve with those who are grieving? Yeah, that's a great question, Doug. I think it's really the question of, to how, how is this something that we have are deciding is truly worth embracing and stepping into, um, which I don't think I have done perfectly. Um, I feel like right now I'm in a season of learning, but yeah, how have we come to say this is something that is significant and that we have a responsibility to understand, to grieve in, to lament, and to seek justice in today? Um, for me, I would say a lot of where this has come about is just getting sort of a full, more full picture of what our history actually is. Um, I would say over the last several years, one of the big things I've been trying to do is just understand where we got to where we are today. Because I think it's easy to look at history and just sort of be thinking, okay, well, there was once slavery in the USA, then there was the civil rights movement, and now things are pretty good. And, and they're, you know, pretty, pretty much like racism is something of the past. And I think, in a sense, that was probably some of what I viewed growing up. Um, to a certain extent was, oh, these, these are issues of the past. Um, we're mostly moved on. But there was, there's been a lot of helpful perspectives that have helped me grow in that. Um, even just becoming aware of the realities of the world we live in and my own privilege and um, the actual injustice that is alive and well, unfortunately, today. And so one uh, really helpful perspective that I've heard recently is from Jamar Tisby. And uh, his, his essential thing, one of the things he says is, it's not as though racism goes away, 
but it's more like saying that it evolves. It changes over time and how it plays out. And so if you look at our culture now, okay, we don't have institutionalized race-based slavery. But when you look at um, our culture now, there are still systemic issues related to race that are occurring. And this makes sense when you think about our history as a whole, just even as a nation. And when I say nation, I mean North America, um, going back to the 1619, which I know is not the founding of our nation, but it's kind of the first time slaves came into our country. So looking at the begin, the kind of the whole story of our nation, you have to ask the question like, can you really at just one point unplug the history of racism and say, okay, we're done with that? I don't think that's how any of history works, that you can just say, oh, we're done with history, like, it's a fresh start, our minds are blank, and we move forward from here. That's never really how anything has ever worked in any of our lives individually or as a culture. But thinking about this, like, for me, it's getting this perspective. Okay, so we had race-based slavery, and in 1619, you had the first slaves coming to North America. Does it then end at the Civil War when slavery is abolished? Uh, no, that's, that'd be overly simplistic to say, okay, now it's just an equal playing field, it's a level playing field, and all of our issues are done, and there's harmony. Uh, when you look at the civil rights movement, do you merely say, okay, the end of segregation, the end of Jim Crow laws is the end of slavery, or is the end of racism in our nation? Again, I think that's overly simplistic. One, because it's, that's only 60 years ago, um, and two, because how do you, again, merely unplug these things? How do you unplug the influence of the Ku Klux Klan, which is still around today, um, and sure, maybe has changed some over the years, but the Ku Klux Klan, still around today, was a reality within our nation. We have lynchings of black men and women in our nation as part of our history. We have... Um, other policies such as things called redlining and which are worth looking into and studying more and I want to study more myself but basically affect the property and mortgages and where uh, people of color are able and allowed to live and in the mortgages that they're allowed to get you have issues with uh, prison pipeline and, and the disproportionate imprisonment of people of color within our system you have um unequal opportunities for education with uh, the wealth discrepancy within our nation being this huge discrepancy and then property taxes being the source of school funding. You have all these complicated, complex factors that if you just want to rush into today and say it's 2020, like we're done, racism is over, like this is great, like it's just, it's not a feasible, tangible reality. Um, and so it's the evolution of racism within our nation over time. And I think this is some of the things I've been learning because I think history always paints a broad brushstroke. And so when you look at the 1960s and you look at MLK and you see the civil rights movement, it can be easy to say, well, here's, here's the solution, here's the resolution. And we, and we moved on and it was all clean and clear. But no, I think there was a lot of confusion and frustration and difficulty and ongoing tension from the 1960s that was going on at that time and probably not as neat and clean as we think it is. Because uh, we can look at it and say, oh, it's just clear. This is this is what everyone knew was right. And, uh, you know, it was either you were a cartoonish racist or you were, um, 
you know, for the civil rights movement. I don't think it was that clear. I think there was probably a lot more confusion. A lot of people who are probably struggling with questions that we're struggling with today. And so for me, as I get to that, I think what it ultimately does is this. It doesn't get me in the spot where I say, great, I'm the solution to this. Um, I figured it out. I'm there. I've arrived. For me, I think it just deeply humbles me. Because it, it challenges me to look at the systems we have in our world, look at the realities, to look at the death of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, to look at these deaths and say, what is unplaying? What's unraveling in this? As I think of the death of Ahmaud Arbery in particular, and we could talk about all different things, but I think of that one. It's like the degradation that I see even in that video as I watched it, it's like a man was being hunted down for his life. And it's just an absurdity. And as I think of something like that, as I see the video of George Floyd with a knee on his neck for eight minutes, you're, it's just this insanity that I'm wondering, like, what is unplaying, unraveling in our society? Like, what is actually beneath this? What dark forces have been continuing for the last 400 years in our nation that are outplaying now today of the systemic evil that we have to speak to today? And so I don't feel like I have the answers to all that, but I think in a sense I'm like, this is a reality we need to confront, which I truly believe the gospel does speak to because as Christians we are called to live out the kingdom of God, to care for the oppressed, to care for um, those who are being treated with less dignity than an image bearer of God deserves to be treated with. So for me, that and that's a bit of a rant, but that that's for me like, I would say my processing of where I'm at in struggling and wrestling through these issues and wondering, okay, how, how do I engage with this going forward? What do I need to be learning? What do I need to be lamenting in? How do I need to be hearing the voices of, of people of color and minorities so that I can actually understand and know how to act wisely moving forward and not merely be complicit in a system which oppress, oppresses others? So that, that's where I'm at. That's 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 some of my struggle right now. Yeah, I think that my tendency also is just to figure out what do I do, what steps do I take, and that's something I am still trying to pray through. Of Lord, how do I faithfully move forward? What are you calling me to in these circumstances in this season? Uh, how can I be faithful with my life and what you've given me um, in the midst of this? But I think one verse that has been resonating with me also is what Doug brought up from Romans 12, where it says, uh, weep with those who weep. And there's other translations, mourn with those who mourn. And there's this idea that as believers in our, in the body of Christ are suffering, uh, we're to listen and sympathize and understand. And I think that that's something I've just been trying to do is just listen and have an open mind. I think that just naturally, I found that in my own heart, I have a tendency to kind of be on defense or just even this sinful tendency to negate what people are saying or not really believe or trust. And yet that started to change, I think, a little bit for me when I was in college and I was talking to uh, friends from different cultural backgrounds and hearing just instances that they had gone through, they were so much different than what I had experienced. And I think of instances in my life that 
I've been not treating the image of God or where people have made assumptions about me or looked down on me, not really for any reason, but have just <laughs> felt superior um, or belittled or made assumptions. Those, those are some of the, I saw research saying that that was one of the most stressful things for our generations when people make assumptions about us or, um, you know, kind of put us in a box. And yet when I've gone through those things, I hate situations like that. And it makes me so mad when just one instance I'm treated like that, that can bug me for weeks or months or years just from one instance. And I think that what I realized as I was talking to friends in college from different backgrounds was that they had had a lot more instances of that in their life than I had. And so I think of the compounding effect of that over time of having run-ins with people where they've been treated differently because of the color of their skin, um, whether that's in being in shops, whether that's just in public, whether that's been runs with the police that I would never even think about having um, or be worried about, but they had gone through. It, it was just kind of fascinating starting to hear some of the stories and how they had had so many experiences like that. And I just think, man, what what would that do? That compounding over time of being not treated in the image of God. And that, that would, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. I have a hard time dealing with one situation like that or two that I go through every once in a while. And so, yeah, I think I just really want to listen and understand and sympathize and weep and come alongside those who are suffering and, just hear and be there for people and then kind of pray okay lord from here what's my next step can you lead me by your spirit to show me what's next yeah greg i think that's helpful to hear the stories of other people who really are grieving um thinking about if my body is hurting or if I've got a wound in my side, the natural default instinct of my hand would be to cover the wound so that it doesn't continue to pour out blood. Now, that won't solve the issue, but that's the instinct. And if we're God's people who bear his image, one body united in Christ, how could we do anything but have an instinct to grieve, to care for those who are hurting? If we're not doing that, then something is wrong in the body. If Reagan comes home and she has been abused, my first instinct should be to grieve with her, to hear her, to listen. But for far too long, the church has not done a good job of this. The world as a whole has not done a good job of this. And it's sorrowful. Um... And I think another thing that's helpful for me is even just seeing that the suffering that people are going through today is not disconnected from the past. It's interesting that sometimes people want to move, move away from the past, but they only say that about other people's pain. If we talk about 9-11, people aren't saying, oh, let's just forget that and move past it. Because we felt that pain and tension. So to say, let's just leave that in the past or the things that happened to any of us as kids, they still play out in our lives or 
thinking about even the Holocaust to say, oh, let's just forget that. There's no way that that could be repeated. It's like, no, it's very dangerous to forget the past, especially when it keeps happening. So to think that what's happening to George Floyd is totally disconnected from the 60s or what happened to Emmett Till and what happened in New York City with a woman calling the police and making a false accusation of against a black man threatening his life. Yeah, these things are not disconnected, but the past continues to play out and we ought to hear the voices of those who are crying out because there is blood that's crying out to, from the ground to like Abel who was killed by his brother. It's not as if evil and wickedness started in the u.s it goes all the way back but it plays out here and we are to condemn sin to condone good to care and i don't know how watching george floyd's video as for eight minutes he's held down and hearing him gasp and he's crying out crying out for his mom and his life is taken away. And I think about the realities of what a lot of people are going through in our country today. Yeah, there is something wrong in the body if our first instinct is not to grieve and to care for those. And so often what can happen is instead of grieving with others' pain, we just focus on our own and become more self-centered. So I can ignore my back pain if I bite my tongue. Um, and I won't notice it. Um, that's actually really bad for my body, though, if I ignore my back pain. I think, yeah, I don't know what it looks like to solve this. But if we ignore the pain of the body of Christ, we're doing a disservice to what God is calling us to as his people. Yeah, I think that's significant. And and I think even in this podcast, I mean, in a sense, this is one of the ones where it's been a difficult podcast even to think of how, how do we talk through this? How do we think through this? Because I think we're just, in a lot of ways, we're, it's, it's a difficult topic for us to talk and think through. There was a really helpful perspective from Brandon Washington, who's a pastor at the Embassy Church in Denver. And he mm -hmm. uh, was on a, a call and he was talking through. And, and a perspective I thought he would, gave was so helpful, Doug, even as you're talking about caring and loving and, and feeling the pain, is talking about how um, sometimes our view of the gospel is like, oh, well, you know, there will one day be a time when this injustice doesn't occur, when this injustice and evil goes away. But how he was sharing about how we actually view that the gospel does affect the way we live now. Um, and that even if you think about a marriage, if you, Doug, were to say to your wife, like, Reagan, I know that I'm a terrible husband, but one day there will be a time when you're married to Christ and he's not going to be a terrible husband. And so just don't worry about the fact that I'm a bad husband right now. Like mm -hmm. that's probably not going to fly. Um, it's like <laughs> no. the gospel should affect how you live with your wife today. It is, a, it is hitting that relationship. It, it, it informs the way that you live and the way that you care and the way that you love and, and how we view justice and mercy and goodness and everything true and right. And even just talking about, is 
as we get into this conversation, we're going to talk more in future times. And I think we're going to talk more about what is the relationship between gospel and justice and mercy and those things. But even just to, I think right now, I think a lot of what we're doing is we're just trying in a sense to recognize the reality of this and share some of the ways that we've come to recognize it in our own lives and even come to be humbled and saying, okay, let's, let's, let's not write this off. Um, let's, let's not do what would be easy to do and think very little of it and say, this isn't an important issue and avoid the insignificant and important issues that are actually before us which the gospel speaks to. But I think right of even what we're trying to do now is just, even in a sense, just enter into looking and grieving at the injustice and the suffering that we have in the world and recognizing and saying, okay, it's here. We need, we need to, we need to lament in this. Um, this should mm-hmm. trouble our hearts. That's healthy. That's good. Thanks, Mark. Uh, Doug, would you mind just closing us out? Yeah. Along with the affirmation of the dignity of God in every man and woman, along with the need to grieve with those who are grieving, one of the things that is also being challenged is we need to have a more complete view of the gospel, of what it is that Christ came to do. He came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Mark, I thought what you were mentioning for Brandon Washington is helpful because none of us would say that a father mistreating his children is not a gospel issue. No, the gospel does speak to that. And when we move from individual relationships to systemic things, it does become more complicated. But the gospel does speak to every area of brokenness in the world. The gospel is all-inclusive in what Christ will eventually do and inclusive in what he cares about doing through his church today. But we also have to say that justice today is not inevitable. That was one of the things that was helpful for me listening to John Perkins saying that justice must always be fought for. It doesn't just happen. I think, Mark, as you were saying earlier, sometimes it can almost be this assumption that we had slavery and then the civil rights movement, and look, things are just going to get better and better and better. But that's not true. It doesn't inevitably happen. Justice today is something that must be fought for. We have to suffer like Christ did, as Martin Luther King did, to bring about the kingdom of God here on earth Because it's not a natural thing to think about others first. It's not a natural thing to grieve about others. It's not a natural thing to uphold the dignity of God in the other as much as we tend to do it in ourselves. But the gospel does give us the ability to follow in the footsteps of Christ who put others above himself, who sacrificed and gave himself so that He could reconcile us to God, reconcile us to one another, and bring about a total redemption of sin. So next time, as we get together, we're going to be talking about the gospel and justice. This is one of the ways that I would say that my picture of the gospel has expanded significantly compared to a decade ago, even compared to five years ago. And I hope that for all of us, we will continue to learn how great the gospel is. And I hope that we'd be willing to listen to 
Christians all around the world and in this moment, particularly our black brothers and sisters, so that we could understand the grace of God in Christ Jesus more fully. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for joining us for this episode. We hope it's of encouragement to you and that you join us next time for another discussion. The music excerpts for this podcast come from the song Enthusiast by Tours, which is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. More information can be found in the show notes.